0: It may not be evident to most of you that the series of messages that I have been given since Sim left came to me in the middle of April. I knew in November, as some of you are aware, I knew in November, I've told you that This is what Sim had on his mind was that I would fill in for these three months. But the Holy Spirit did not give me liberty to go and study something, prepare, from last November. But he did so in the middle of April, which is why I asked Sim if I could have the month of May off in order to prepare. And what has been very interesting to me is to see how the time in which the messages come that it is just in God's time and you will understand why i'm saying that later on in this message because of what transpired this week in my life So I'll just back up a couple of messages. We were looking at the fact that we've been saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. And that's a wonderful message to be able to deliver is that God, through his grace, has provided a way by which our sins can be forgiven. Last week, we had a look at what it's like to walk by grace, And I don't think we really, really understand what grace is until we've walked through the difficult trenches of life. Mary and Joanne, Ari, they know. There's others here that know what it's like to be down. There where you have nowhere else to go. But depend on God. And then to find. That his divine favor has been bestowed upon you. He's given us things. In those low moments. Where we've come to know what grace is all about. It's undeserved. Unmerited. Nothing we could have done. Of ourselves. And yet he is the one that gives us the grace to go through those things. And some go through very, very difficult circumstances and very often in private. You may be here this morning and you're going through those difficult times too. But we can get in our minds that grace is so overabundant and beyond measure that it's greater than all of our sins. And we think then that we can do anything we want. We can live our lives like we would like to live our lives. And I'm talking about believers here this morning. This message is for those that are believers. And it might shock you, that this is even possible for a believer to live a life something like this. It's difficult to deliver messages like this. If it wasn't for the fact that I have gone through some things myself, I'm, a, I'm afraid that God would put me through circumstances so that it became real in my life. And I hope what we're about to hear this morning becomes a reality in your life. This is not just a theory. This is where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life. So the law came in only to expand and increase the trespass, making it more apparent and exciting opposition, but where sin increased and abounded God's Grace, God's unmerited favor, has surpassed it and increased the more and superabounds. And I have a feeling that this next verse that we're going to look at was probably something that was posed to Paul because he was the greatest exponent of the grace of God. If you were to count the number of times that Paul talks about grace, I think it's something like 93 times in his writings. The next closest is John. I think it's John. And he refers to it about 58 times. Paul was the greatest exponent of the grace of God, and I believe it came into question. What are you talking about, John, or Paul? And he writes this in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace might abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Wow, what does that mean? How do we die to sin? The overwhelming theme of chapter 6 is death. My wife went to be with the Lord almost three years ago next month. And as long as we are in these bodies of flesh, we're tempted to sin. But the moment she took her last breath, sin no longer had any influence on her. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And we think of this, we tend to have minds that think of the physical realm. But he's talking a very deep truth here in which he's equating natural death to this death in which we're set free from sin. And he goes on to say, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? The word baptism simply means to place into something. So what Paul is writing about here is that we have been baptized or placed into Christ. And this is a concept that we find difficult to understand. But the moment a person believes in Jesus Christ as their Savior, they go through the same experiences as Jesus went through. God somehow, and I can't explain it, puts us into Christ. And in a sense takes us back in time to the crucifixion. For us to experience the fact that we have been crucified with Christ. We've been placed into Him so that these things can be true of us. When He was crucified, then He died and He went into death. That death separated Him from sin. The moment we die physically, we're separated from sin. It no longer has any authority or influence or dominion over a dead person. And that's the way that God views the believer. You have died. Sin should be done away with because you're dead. But we have trouble getting it through our minds that we're dead. We still have the strength and the desires of the flesh that we want to do it our way. We have to die to that. So he goes on to say, therefore we were buried with Christ through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Not only death, but resurrection with Christ, which we won't go into today. But if you have died with Christ, you must bury the old you. King James says the old man has been crucified with Christ. And this is where we as believers run into, if I would say, roadblocks, basically set up by the flesh within us. We're not willing to bury that old man. God says that that old man has been crucified and has died but we still tend to carry that old man around with us. And if we have died, and we begin to carry along that old self, we can do our best to put lipstick on, comb the hair, put powder on, rouge on, whatever, to fancy up this old body. But all we're doing is dragging a dead body behind us. And Martha says of Lazarus, After four days, he stinks. And that can be true of the believer. It's been true of me. When I take the ascendancy, that's the old Dave, and I don't realize that that old man has died, and I'm trying to resurrect that old man, make it look presentable, and all it does is devastate my life and everybody else's life. That I come in contact with. So we've been raised. For we have been united together. In the likeness of Christ's death. Certainly also. We shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. God places a believer into Christ. So that whatever happened to him. Happens to us. In other words. We're united to Christ. In his death. We've become one in him. The experience of this for some, can be devastating. It was for me. When Charles Price was here last fall, I asked him this. I said, does it require a person to really hit rock bottom and come to an end of their selves and it's a traumatic experience? And he says, yes, for some. I said, well, that was my experience. I was absolutely devastated. But he said, others... He says, I would kind of say it's kind of like a Damascus experience where they're saved and they realize that they have died. The old is not worth carrying on with. And it resonated with me because my friend that I told you about, when he passed away at the age of 78 last year, he was saved when he was 58. And we would discuss this subject as I took him back and forth to chemo. And he says, Dave, it's never been a problem for me. From day one, as soon as I was saved, I knew my previous life was not worth anything. Christ was everything. But crucifixion freezes from our slavery to sin, knowing thus that the old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. When it comes to crucifixion, it has become it's very obvious we can't crucify ourselves if we could and we managed to get one hand nailed we can't what are we going to do with the other we can't crucify ourselves god is the one that does that so that we go through that experience of what it is to feel completely helpless we can't move And we hang there until a death occurs. And when that death occurs in our life, we are experiencing what Christ went through. We have been united together with him. Jesus died to set us free from our slavery to sin. For he who has died has been set free from sin. Do you believe it? We have to believe it. This is not a theory. For he who has died to the old has been set free from sin. But the problem is we look at our lives and we say it doesn't really look like it. We look at our performance instead of what God says is true. God says you have died with Christ. If you have died with Christ, then you have been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we should also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Sin no longer has dominion over someone who has died. And here's the clincher. Paul states that these things are true and they are true of a believer. What happened to Christ was real. But now he says, likewise you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if God says we've died to sin, then simply believe it. Death separates us from sin. When Jesus died to sin and we died with him, we were taken to a place where sin has lost its power. The problem comes in as we still see it in our lives. But Paul uses the word reckon here, which means to put together in one's mind. So he says Christ has died, and he has died to sin. Now you reckon it to be so in your life. So you need to put that together in your mind. That's what this reckoning is. It's similar to the word impute. You're familiar with the word impute as it was used in the case of Abraham. Righteousness was imputed under Abraham, and I'm saying bank account because the word impute is a banking term. It means to put into something. So righteousness was put into Abram's bank account when he believed what God said that he would also do. God did that. Abraham didn't do that. God says you're righteous and he put that into Abram's bank account. However, when we reckon ourselves to be dead to sin, we're the ones that are depositing this truth into our bank account. We need to get that into our minds. When we reckon ourselves to be dead to sin, we are the ones depositing it. That's why Paul says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive unto God in Christ Jesus. If you reckon it, you can take it to the bank and you know it's, it's true. And this is where we get kind of hung up on this because we say, okay, I understand that, but we always have the buts. My life doesn't seem to be in keeping with that. We have to keep going back to what God says and believe what God says to be true. So herein lies the problem. If we don't believe by faith that we have died to sin, we can't deposit into our account. Therefore, we remain conscious of our sins instead of being conscious of our righteousness. Righteousness was imputed to the believer. But, if we don't realize that we've died, we can't live as if we've died. We can't come into the benefits of the fact that our sins have been forgiven and they do not have authority and dominion over us. They're there We're plagued by it as long as we're in this flesh. But we need a change of mind here. We need to go back to realize that God says, you have died to sin just the same way as which Jesus has died to sin. You're separated from it because you've died. Sin no longer has dominion over a dead body. The result of this, if we're thinking this way, We begin to live a defeated life in which we never gain victory over our sins unless we get a hold of this that we have died with Christ. And we're going to have to see what's this look like. But what a sad state for a believer to be living in. And many are living in this condition. Walking around in the flesh and not operating in the spirit. Knowing we have died to sin empowers the believer to live a righteous life. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of righteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Do not let sin reign. How do we do that? So many things in the Christian life is based on the same kind of principle, if you will. We have a responsibility. We are tempted to sin because we're still in the flesh. Through our five senses, what we see, hear, taste, touch, and smell, we are tempted to sin. All of us, without exception. No matter how long you are in the Christian journey, we're all tempted dealing with the same thing. But when we're tempted is what makes the difference. If we're tempted and we realize that there's a temptation and we say no, and we keep saying no, and we keep saying no, and it keeps coming back, and we keep saying no, eventually we gain victory over it. I'm going to give you just a, A simple illustration with that. My wife used to make wine. I don't know how you feel about it, but we had wine. I went over to a friend's this week. I was out for a walk, and they were up in their balcony, and they motioned me to come up. My old friend, age 90. I've known him since I was a teenager. And he and his wife were sitting on their balcony. I sat down. He doesn't get many visitors, and I should visit more often. He says, Dave, would you like a glass of wine? I said, well, mm, maybe, maybe not. I wasn't sure. I said, well, Mac, you know, after my wife passed, it's pretty easy to sit down and have a glass of wine, and before you know it, a bottle's gone. Two bottles are gone. And I said to him, you know, I realize that's not great. I need to quit this. So I did. I just said no to it. Well, the next day, oh, man, would I ever like a glass of wine. I enjoyed wine. (laughs) Didn't have any. Got rid of it. Probably after a week or two, I never even thought about it. And that's exactly the same case with sin. We're tempted to do something. We're constantly tempted. But we have to constantly say no, no, no. Why? Because I've died. I have to go back in my experience with Christ and realize that there was a point in time when God says, you have died to sin. Don't live in it anymore. It's not to have authority over you. It doesn't have dominion over you. I have to believe it by faith. That's the Christian life. Why has has sin lost its authority over us? Sin shall not have dominion or authority over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. I won't go into this just now. The next two messages are the law. Why was the law given? And is it possible that we can be set free from the law? It's all encased here in Romans chapter 6. And you'll find as you go through, you're going to get all these references back and forth that interact with each other, and they overlap each other. So then, shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, that you're the ones slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? We don't realize that we're slaves. We're always slaves, either to unrighteousness or righteousness. We're always slaves. But God be thanked that though you were, that is, past tense, slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And Paul says, end of the story. This has actually happened to you. Now begin to live it. So you're, are you a slave of sin or a slave to righteousness? I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things was death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, You have your fruit to holiness and the end is eternal life. When we begin to live this life where we realize that we have died with Christ, we're set free from sin, it doesn't have its holdovers the same, we battle it, yes, day after day, but we're conscious of it and we keep making choices to say no, no, no to sin. And that eventually produces fruitfulness and holiness which leads to eternal life. The wages of sin is death. Don't forget this. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus, in his death, paid the penalty for those wages. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The only way to be set free from sin is to die with Christ. This might challenge us. Could this be the reason you're still sin conscious? You haven't really died. It hasn't become a reality in your life, even although God says it's so. You haven't really believed it and acted upon it. Therefore, you're still sin conscious. That's not what God has in mind for the believer. Let me get my Bible out here. I think it's, I think it's Hebrews 10. I'll just read it to you here. Um... Hebrews 10, verse 1 and 2. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make those who come to it perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because it didn't make them perfect. Because the worshipers once purged should have had no more consciousness of sins You hear that? Some might give me flack, but that's what the scripture says. There's no more consciousness of sins because you've died. If you're conscious of it, you need to go back and see, did you really die? God says you did, but it never became a reality in your life because you didn't really fundamentally believe it. John... The Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. That's what this is all about. If I've died, I'm not important anymore, only Christ. This is the Christian life. Let me stop here. As I said when I started, it's amazing how God has worked in various ways. And I had an email this week. And when I read it, my heart was broken. Literally, tears were rolling down my cheeks. It affected me so much. And in that note, the person that wrote it reiterated the experiences in different churches. It was devastating. It hit me so much because I know what it's like. I've been there. From the time I was a teenager, I was up against opposition. From those that were even my grandfather's age. And as I began to look at this and revisit this, it ties right in with this message this morning. For one, if we have not actually accepted and realized that we've died with Christ, we will never get victory over sin. The other side of the coin is this. If that is me, that I have not really died to sin, that I have not died with Christ, it becomes very evident. And I can be in a church. I can be in leadership. This can be me. I take pride in what I do. And I get my identity in what I do. And when I bump up against other people, that are going through difficult times, everything but the love of God shines through me because I'm so full of myself. I, as a believer, am still walking in the flesh. This needs to come to an end. Lives have been shattered. I can say that with some authority. The reason being is the church that I grew up in went through a number of splits. And the last one that I was present in and left from that point on, I would say, without exaggeration, at least 90% of my generation left and never, ever set foot in a church again. Why? Because those that were in positions of authority did not live as if they had died. This is real, and we need to look at each of our hearts, me included. This is real, and it's devastating to the body of Christ. I need to be nothing and Christ everything. If I'm filled with him, if he's evaded my life, and he's the joy of my life, that's what's going to come out. But if I'm still full of self, that's what's going to come out. And that's the most devastating thing to the body of Christ. What we're doing is dragging around a dead body And trying to make it look good. And it stinks. We need to be reminded of what Paul says. Each esteeming the other as more excellent. That's not those that you know are more excellent. That's those that you might think are not as excellent as you. Esteem each other as more excellent. When you do... That's a clear sign of the fact that you have died. That first man has died and has been buried. We need to bury it. Let's get rid of it. We're approaching times in which I believe, and I know it's not popular with a lot of great names today, but I sincerely believe that the heart of God is not willing that any should perish. And that there will be a great in-gathering at the end. And we are the ones that need to be involved in it. But if I stand in the way, it'll be devastating. Where there would be victory, there's failure. We need to have a look at our own hearts and see where we stand on this. So let's just come back. To what Paul says shall we continue in sin that grace may abound certainly not how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it and here's the clincher this is why we have difficulty understanding these things that Paul writes about everything God has given to us to live the Christian life is received by faith not by sight so I can ask everyone here that's saved do you have a certificate verifying that your sins were forgiven? Have you got that certificate that you put up in your wall? I didn't get one. Maybe you did. I didn't get one. Can you show the marks of your crucifixion with Christ? No. Can you produce your death certificate? No. Does that mean it's not true? It's every bit true. It's every bit true. The only way in which others are going to see it is that Christ is living in you and he's shining out through you and the Holy Spirit is using you to reach people. We don't have the certificates on the wall. We live by faith, not by sight. And I can guarantee you, you know the ones that are going to pick up on that first of all? I can guarantee this the young ones. The young ones can pick out a fake quicker than we can, and they do. And they're attracted to those that have the Holy Spirit living in them, and Christ's life is shining through them. Young ones are attracted to it. I even go as far as to say animals. There was one time I was down on the trail. I liked animals. There was a little dog there, and I went up to greet this little dog, and the owner says, Wow, he never does that to anybody. (laughs) He runs away. No, I think what is inside of us, people see. We'll close with this. If for a little while you have been grieved by various trials, and who hasn't? I think everybody here is in that boat. I am in this boat. It's so that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Those of you and maybe all of us are faced with difficult circumstances physically, mentally, financially, whatever it is we're all faced with with something and if we get to really realize that when we're going through those things is when God is forming us to be used by him it doesn't look like it at the time I remember years ago one of my co-workers a believer he would be in his 90s now if he's alive I think he might be and he asked me he says Dave how's your son doing And I began to share with him a few things. I mean, these are teenage years. I don't know if you've gone through this with teenagers or not, but I had trouble with all three. It was tough going. How's he doing? So I tell him, and I'll never forget it. He looked at me and he says, I see. So God's working on his testimony. That's the way of looking at it, right? We're going through these things. We're all going through something because God's wanting to form us and to make us like Christ. And the only way that happens is he has to break us down until we get rid of ourselves so that only, only Christ comes forth. We're all in the process. None of us have arrived. Certainly not me. But that's what God is up to. So whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, we're living by faith here, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. God's main purpose is for the salvation of our souls. What a God we have. He loves us more than we realize he really does but what he's looking for he's looking for broken vessels he's looking for dead people and he's the one that's going to make us alive and he's going to use us the way he wants to use us I trust that that will be a blessing for you it's challenging I found it challenging but this is part of the Christian life and unfortunately I remember in all the years that I've been around, a number of people that have been walking in the flesh, making it obvious to everybody that they're in charge. If I get like that, would somebody please talk to me? Don't let that happen. Please don't let that happen. I'm still susceptible to it. We all are. Talk to me. If not, I'm taking the place of Christ. What a terrible place to be in. And people are devastated as a result. I pray that some of you might be liberated today. Some of you might see where you've come from. You might see that God has been working behind the scenes. And some of those broken points in your life were necessary for you To be used by God today. May God bless you.